Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles and you open them up to the book of Nahum, that's the seventh of the last 12 prophets in the Old Testament. So if you start in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and turn to the left, go over about five different books, and you'll get to the book of Nahum. We've got a lot to do this morning, so I'm going to get right to work. Uh, So we are in a series, for those who are joining us, welcome, where we decided to go through the 12 minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and to preach one sermon for each prophet, which is an interesting or at least different way to teach and a little bit different way to learn. But our hope is that it gives you a, hopefully a deeper or better understanding of some biblical literacy. These are books of the Bible that you may not often read, but they're all part of the story of God. And also that it will give you some insight into Christ and where He is in the Old Testament and how this one story all works together towards the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, This morning, as Mark said, we're in Nahum, and the name Nahum uh, means actually comforter. Now, in the beginning of the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about God and comfort, and he says this to begin his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a lot of comfort, right? And we like and should like that God is a God of comfort, that He comforts us in our affliction, and that we are able to comfort those Uh, who also need comfort, perhaps in the same way we were afflicted, but also comforted by God. So this is the book written by the Comforter, titled as The Comforter. And ironically, it's quite uncomfortable. Because it's a book or a prophecy that is largely about God's wrath, directed at God's enemies. It's uncomfortable, or I should say our culture has a lot of discomfort with a God of wrath, with an angry God. We are offended in our culture with a God who judges, a God who punishes, a God who destroys sinners. That makes us uncomfortable. It makes a lot of people in our culture uncomfortable. In our discussion about this book, as I was preparing, the elders had just a meeting, a regular meeting, and we bring up what's coming up this Sunday, and AJ reminded us all of what Tim Keller had observed in a book that I had read, but didn't remember this part, uh, Reason for God. If you haven't read Reason for God, it's a very helpful, apologetic book uh, for a contemporary age. And in his chapter titled, um, How Can a Loving God Send People to Hell? Great chapter, you should read it. But he discusses the differences between the Western and the Eastern view of the wrath of God. And he basically says the Westerner, surprisingly or perhaps not so, is offended by the idea of a God of judgment, while the Easterner, that particular characteristic of God, is very compelling. It's one of the reasons why they actually appreciate God and His wrath. For their part, though, the Easterner is very disturbed and experiences a great amount of discomfort. Imagine a God who forgives, a God who shows grace. So it's interesting how our culture shapes our view. 
And we live, and probably most of us are raised in a culture where an angry God is something to be avoided, is why many have said, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. Well, as we work through this uncomfortably wrathful prophecy of Nahum, it's my hope that it actually brings comfort. And by that I mean it brings you comfort to know that we actually worship a God who gets angry at the right things at the right way in the right time. God's wrath and God's love are actually not antithetical. They're not against one another. They're not exclusive of one another. On the contrary, I believe they're very much interconnected. That you cannot have a God of love without a God of wrath. It's hard for us to imagine maybe being angry and loving at the same time. And that's because we are really bad at being angry and loving. All of our love, no matter how great it is, falls short of the glory of God. And all of our anger, which might be easier to believe, also falls short of the glory of God. It's all tainted with sin. So we never are very angry in a perfect way or loving in a perfect way. But God is always perfect in His anger and always perfect in His love at the same time. Which is mind-blowing for us if you really think about it. But this is why the Bible says more than once that God's ways are above our ways, His thoughts are above our thoughts, that He is not a man like us. God's anger, therefore, or God's wrath, or God's judgment, or God's vengeance, perhaps it's not often preached about in God's church because in our culture we're so offended by it. But it's nothing actually we should ignore because God writes about it often. It's nothing we should hide or even apologize about. And that is because I am convinced that the certainty of God's wrath for sin actually has the power to bring us comfort. And it actually reveals just how loving God truly is. Now, that doesn't get revealed for everyone. And what I mean is, this one message in Nahum actually has two different purposes for two different audiences. The first, if you will, is probably for those who are victims or have been victims of injustice, victims of oppression, of abuse, or neglect. And those are very large terms that are an umbrella for lots of things. But those who have been hurt by someone and you are unable to find justice or are unable to receive justice or you'll never get justice for that wrong that's been done to you. My prayer is that this brings you comfort to know that there will be a reckoning and that God sees all and knows all. At the same time, the second audience is for those ultimately who are makers of injustice. Those who are the victimizers those who are the unrepentant abusers, those who believe that they've gotten away with it, those who believe that God doesn't know, God doesn't care, because God hasn't done anything yet. Emphasis on yet. There are those among us, certainly those in our culture, who have wronged people and have not met justice. Knowing that there is an angry God who sees all should bring that audience fear to know 
as the writer of Hebrews says, something very important. That if we go on sinning deliberately, that deliberately is really important because all of us are going to go on sinning, stumbling. But there's a difference between being settled with sin and struggling with sin. Amen? If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is the second audience, and really the audience that Nahum is writing to mainly. I say that mainly because Israel receives the prophecy, but the prophecy is directed towards God's enemies. So they receive comfort, and Assyria receives judgment, if you will. Now, Nahum is one of a handful of these 12 prophets, and I say handful because there's about three or four that are actually not prophecies written to God's people, which most of them are. They are written to nations around Israel. God actually writes prophecies, two prophecies, to this particular people, the people of Assyria. And the first verse of Nahum tells us specifically who it's to. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Okay? And it gets more specific at the very end of Nahum. It says, king of Assyria. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And so this prophecy is directed at this great, at the time, greatest empire in the world, particularly the capital, the heart of the nation or the empire, and to the king himself. So it's very specific. Now, as I said, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Ironically, um, it gets judged by God, obviously. That's the story. He just gave it away, right, of Nahum. And it got so wiped out that scholars and archaeologists actually argued whether Nineveh was a real place for years. And it was actually just recently, like in the 20th century, I believe, they discovered, like, oh, this is actually, this big pile of rubble hill was actually Nineveh. But it was, at the time, a grand capital, and it was located actually on the east side of the Tigris River, bordering what would be today Mosul in Iraq. Okay? Now, the walls of the city, and I believe I have a picture of it. This is not a photograph. Okay? In case you went, how did they do that? Yeah. An artistic rendition of what they imagined Nineveh may have looked like. So it was a grand city that symbolized their power and their wealth, and there were several different walls for the city. The inner wall was the tallest of the wall, was 100 feet tall. I'm not sure exactly how wide it was, but it was wide enough to have chariot races, three chariots across. So it was a big wall. And then there was an outer wall. And on the outside of that wall was a 150 foot wide moat that I believe was like 60, 50 or 60 feet deep. Okay? Now you look at a city like that, you're like, yeah, that's not going anywhere, right? Now, mind you, it went away so much so that no one was really sure whether it actually existed, which kind of speaks to the judgment of God. That said, at the time that it is being written, this prophecy, they are at the peak of their power. And perhaps you remember uh, 
there was another prophet sent to this same city named Jonah, right? And many years prior to Nahum, Jonah had been sent under the reign of Jeroboam II. Um, he had been sent to this city by God, and he tried to run from God's mission because he didn't want to go into the heart of the enemy's uh, nation, right, into the capital city. So he tried to run, and he so much wanted to avoid doing what God wanted him to do, he was even willing to die in many ways. He was cast into the sea, and we know the story. After he was swallowed by the whale, seemingly went through an act of repentance, spit up on the beach, God said, now go back to Nineveh. And what he told him specifically, and you can read this in the book of Jonah, he said, arise, this is the second time, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and it is great, and call out against the message I tell you. And this is the message. In 40 days, Nineveh's going to fall. That's it. So he spent several days walking through the city, 40 days, Nineveh's going to fall. 40 days, Nineveh's going to fall. 40 days, Nineveh's going to fall. Then he went, popped some popcorn, put a chair up on a hill, and sat there to wait for God's wrath to fire, you know, come down from the sky. Well, the problem was, or the not problem was, the pagan Ninevites said, we believe. And they repented, which upset Jonah a little bit, which is ironic by ironic, I mean, Jonah is this book where, and people would get upset about this, just as Jonah did. How could you ever forgive them? How could you ever show mercy to such horrible people? And people get upset. Maybe the more Easterners get upset about that. And then the Westerners read Nahum and go, well, how could you be so angry? How could you judge so much and so wrath? And you're like, God can't win for losing, right? He can't do anything. Show mercy, show wrath. He's wrong all the time. God's ways are not our ways. He is not a man like us. So, Jonah ministered between 800 and 750 B.C. But after that point, at some time, Assyria went back to their ways. Matthew Henry says they repented of their repentance. And they began to do the same cruel conquering, being as brutal and wicked as they've been before, even more so. And so over 100 years later, 100, 150, somewhere in there, Nahum rises at the peak of the Assyrian power. And I say peak, they were very vast and they controlled just about every part of the Middle East. They had just conquered Thebes in Egypt. At one point in Nahum, they actually use that example. God says, are you greater than Thebes? And so he talks about this time where they are at the peak of their power, ruling, if you will, everything. And Nahum arises to basically say, you're going to be destroyed. They are known for their military strength. They are known for their cruelty. Uh, but most importantly, at least in the eyes of God, they're known for in 722, which was 30 or 40 years after Jonah, they had conquered Israel, the northern part of the nation. So the southern part would be Judah, the northern part of Israel. They had wiped out Israel. They also oppressed the southern part of Judah, but didn't fully conquer it. It tells us in Isaiah, because Isaiah was a contemporary, 
in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So they wiped out, if you will, all the cities. But Jerusalem, the capital, still existed. And Jerusalem became a vassal state, a servant state, if you will, of Assyria, so that Assyria could walk through them and get to Egypt. Okay? And so Judah is serving, if you will, Assyria, and Nahum writes up to preach something that would be at the time somewhat politically incorrect, but not in the eyes of God, obviously. Nevertheless, the Assyrians were a brutal people. God's people were either enslaved or they had been totally conquered. And as anyone would think, God's people are saying, God, are they going to get away with this? Do you care? Reminds me of when the disciples are in the boat with Jesus and the storm rages and he's snoozing and they're freaking. And what do they say to Jesus? They wake him up and they say, don't you even care that this is happening? And that is what is happening here. But as the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said in the song that we sang on Christmas Eve, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. And he wrote that in the midst of the war. His sons had suffered. He had seen this horrible conflict happen. And he sees all this injustice and all this evil. And he said, God is not dead. He does not sleep, implying that he is in control and he will do something. So God sends Nahum to reveal the future destruction of Assyria. And it's a brutal message to what amounts to a brutal people. I call them brutal because they destroyed in the most brutal and cruel ways. They would conquer nations. They would openly flay leaders, put kings on posts. Uh, if they didn't kill you, they actually exiled you, which they had done to Israel. They took them completely into the east uh, and they would remove and erase their identities completely. They would supplant or move back their own Assyrian people and basically establish a Syrian culture in that nation. Nahum kind of describes how they treated this many nations, all nations. It says they enslaved nations, they exercised endless cruelty, and they stripped the lands clean. And so most of the book, and I say most of the book, the large part of chapter 2 and almost all of chapter 3 is God's detailed explanation about how he's going to strategically dismantle the Assyrian military, the Assyrian nation, and he uses language to describe how he does this. He says, your chariots are going to fail, your walls are going to fall, the river gates, capital city, are going to open up, the palace is going to melt away, and all your wealth is going to be plundered. He attacks every part of the things that it would take the most pride in to say, this is all going to come tumbling down. And he's, why is this going to happen? Because I'm against you. The one true creator of the universe says, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm going to burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I'm going to cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. He declares that he's going to treat them as brutally as they treated others. This is God's language for how he's going to inflict his wrath. I am against you again, he says. 
declares the Lord of hosts, which in some translations will say the Lord of armies. I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. This is what Assyria has done to all these nations. So much so that at the very end, the last verse of Nahum, he tells them, there is no easing for your hurt. The wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you, about your destruction, are going to clap hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil and cruelty? Because the whole world is going to rejoice when you fall because of how cruel you are. Those are the words of the Lord. And that's the bulk of the prophecy. And it's not the part that I want to focus on, but I need you to understand it's there. Because if you go, what's Nahum about? It's about God unleashing his wrath upon his enemies and destroying them completely. The greatest enemy you can imagine. The part I want to focus on is actually the beginning of Nahum. The first kind of seven verses. Because in these first seven verses, before he tells all the destructions coming, God reveals who he is. He talks about his character. And he talks about it in ways that might surprise us. If I were to ask you to describe God, I'm not sure you would use the terms that God uses about himself. And we can learn much from it. The very beginning of Nahum says this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Rhetorical question. No one is the answer. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is how he starts the prophecy. We don't often hear descriptions of God like this. We don't dwell on descriptions of God like this, but this is how God describes himself. We like this verse. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But it's so important that we understand those first four verses before we get to this one. Because this one doesn't make sense without the other one. It goes together. They're not antithetical. Now, I like to spend our time on these verses and more than anything, I believe the Bible is the self-revelation of God. It is revealing of himself, of his heart, of his character, of his purposes, of his mission, of his plan for everything. And there are verses like these in Nahum and a, a few other places where God reveals exactly who he is. One of those was when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of God. 
And you may remember Moses made a request, show me your glory, I just want to see you. And God says, yeah, you couldn't handle it. But I'll shove you in this rock, and I'll walk by you, and I'll declare my name to you. And he's doing that, it's not like Bob, it's not like that. When he declares his name, he's declaring really his character, who who it is, the heart of who he is. And this is what he says. Shoves him in the rock. The Lord passes before him and proclaims. This is God declaring his own name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We like those parts. We like the next part. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's not just going to forget sin. He's not just going to overlook sin. He's going to forgive. He's going to love. But he's also going to judge. Now, we, as I said, particularly in our culture, easily embrace, warmly embrace the mercy and grace of God. But as we have read in Nahum, God offers some rather surprising self-descriptions. Attributes that offend us. And they're surprising because the things he ascribes to himself are the same things that elsewhere in Scripture he condemns in men or mankind. And you go, wait, you're jealous? I thought we're not supposed to be jealous. But I believe a proper understanding of these usually or unusually dark attributes actually help us to understand and see them as necessary from a God who is actually truly loving. I want to go through them. There's only four, and we'll go through them rather quickly. The first one is where God says, the Lord is a jealous God. I'm not sure if I asked you to describe who God is, the God you worship, if you would say he is a jealous God. But God uses that quite often to describe himself. At the same time, we're told in places like 1 Corinthians 3 not to be jealous. We're actually said that, or told that jealousy is a mark of our brokenness, of our flesh. Paul writing says, I, brothers, I can't even address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He's not being complimentary. Okay? He's saying, look, you guys are not where you should be. I fed you milk and not solid food, for you weren't ready for it, and even now you're not ready, though you're an adult and you shouldn't be drinking from the bottle still. Okay? But he goes on. Four, why would I call you infants? Why would I call you spiritually mature? Why would I say you're not where you should be? You're still the flesh because there's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? It's bad. Jealousy is bad. And then God says, I'm a jealous God. How does that work? We need to understand jealousy. Jealousy in men is always self-centered. Jealousy in men is really boils down to coveting what you don't have. Jealousy is a sin because you are desiring something that ultimately doesn't belong to you and likely belongs to someone else. Envy. Jealousy. Now in some sense, 
it's very right for a man or a woman to be jealous for their husband or their wife, especially when someone is trying to rob their affection from you. So there is seemingly the potential for a good kind of jealousy in a spouse because of the covenant relationship they enjoy. However, God and his jealousy is quite different. God cannot be jealous for what he doesn't have because he has everything. He owns everything. He is perfect. There's no attribute he doesn't possess that he doesn't possess in perfection. But God is jealous in the very real and tangible way for that which only belongs to Him. Namely, worship, praise, or anything else that we might give to another God. False God. And that includes His people that He saved for His possession. He's not jealous of His people. He is jealous for His people. He desires to have uh, them to experience joy and the hope and the security that is best. And what is best is the joy and hope and security that comes from Him. Because it's perfect and it's satisfying. God's jealousy is a desire for His people to have the fullness of His love and for His love to have supremacy in their lives. Like a very faithful husband who faithfully wants his bride's affection to be set on him for security, her security to be found in him for all the things that we say, yes, we should find them here. That's what he wants, the fullness of love to be experienced by his people. So he's looking at the Assyrians and saying, you're hurting my bride. You're hurting the one. It's relational language. You are hurting the one that I love. You are hurting the one that I save. You are hurting the one that I have been charged with protecting and caring for. And I will not let you hurt the one that I love. God is a jealous God. The second thing Nahum says is that the Lord is avenging and wrathful. Getting us a little more uncomfortable. Well, I can handle maybe jealousy explained like that. But wrathful? Vengeful? And again, that's because the Bible tells us we're not to be vengeful. That we are not to take revenge. We are not to exact justice. Or as it's often said in our culture, take the law into our own hands. In fact, the Lord tells us that we are to feed our enemies, love our enemies. That we are to overcome evil with good. And you go... Okay, does that mean that God has been overcome by evil if he's wrathful? And we say no. It's hard to imagine, though, how God can be both vengeful or wrathful and loving at the same time. But truly, if we think about it for a second in a humanly way, all loving persons are at times filled with wrath. And particularly, they're filled with wrath because of their love. Something or someone they love is being hurt or harmed or exposed, whatever it might be. See, God is angry and wrathful towards wickedness that destroys the things He loves. His world, His people. As Tim Keller 
observed, if God didn't make an end to violence, then he would not be worthy of worship. And we would say that about any judge. We would never call a judge righteous or good if as he is holding court, the victimizer, imagine the worst of worst, whoever that is in your world, the murderer, the pedophile, whatever it is, and the judge has said, you know what? Let's just have a do-over. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. We would say that is not a good judge. That is not a righteous judge. In many ways, God, the concept that God will take vengeance actually brings us comfort. And I would say it actually brings us comfort to the extent where it will restrain us from taking our own vengeance. We take the law into our own hands. We exact our own vengeance when we believe justice is never actually going to come about. When that person is never going to have to pay for what they did. But when you know that there is a reckoning, and when you know that the Lord sees all, knows all, and nothing escapes him, you can actually let your hands go of having to demand justice, knowing that justice will come. It actually frees you because there is a God who takes wrath someday, if not before then. Well, the third thing that Nahum tells us it's a little difficult to maybe embrace is that the Lord is slow to anger. We like the slow part, just not the angry part. He says the Lord is angry. And again, the Bible tells us we're not to be angry. Now, to be fair, in Ephesians 4, it does say, be angry, but don't sin. So there are actually times where if you're not angry, you're actually making a mistake. But in our sin, we have a tendency to not be slow to anger, but blow to anger, right? To give full vent to our anger. We call it righteous anger, but I would say that many of us are guilty of calling sinful anger righteous. And this is why we have to get warnings in the Bible, right? Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. When you see this kind of stuff, these appear in Scripture because we are not quick to hear. We're quick to talk. And we're not slow to anger. We go really fast. And God says, don't do that. Why? Because the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. But the anger of God does produce the righteousness of God. That's important to remember. It doesn't say no anger. Anger doesn't produce righteousness. It says, no, the anger of man doesn't. Because it's imperfect. And it's tainted with sin. We are called to be slow to anger, which is the same description that God has of himself. Sin makes God burn with anger. And praise Him that He is a God who is slow to anger. That it burns over a long time. He is patient. And not just patient with the Assyrians, right? Here's the thing about it. We read Nahum and we put ourselves in Nahum's shoes when we should put ourselves in the Assyrian boots. He is slow to anger. He could have wiped out the Assyrians Certainly, 150 years prior, but any time after that. And yet he is slow, and he is patient with his enemies, and even with 
his people. He restrained his wrath in the time of Jonah, and he patiently endured as the Assyrians repented of their repentance. Unlike us, and I don't have an anger issue, but my children, I know, at least my son, first son, he used to say this about me because I probably lean more on law than on grace. Like when something's wrong, I'm like, that's wrong. He used to go, you're so quick. You're always so quick. I'm like, what do you mean by quick? Well, I know what he means now in retrospect as I have four other kids. That's my tendency to be quick. Maybe not full-blown anger, but be quick in justice. Oh, that's wrong. The Lord is not like that. The Lord is not quick. He's not rash. He's not reckless in his anger. You know, the Lord is never tempted to wild rage. He unleashes his righteous anger at the right time and the right way, always, with perfect precision and timing. God is patient and slow to become angry, but guess what? He rightfully gets angry. And his anger is good. And it's good because anger is the just response to injustice. Anger is the just response to injustice, and God's anger makes injustice right. Right? He restores it to righteousness. So God is a God of anger. That's not all He is, but that's an aspect of who He is. The last one that Nahum speaks about is that the Lord is great in power. Now, when you have a God who is jealous for his people and will do whatever he needs to do to save and to redeem and to make sure his people know his love and is not robbed by some other false god. When you have a God who is wrathful and vengeful, when a God who's angry and will exact justice where you need to be, you also need a God of power who can actually make sure that happens. We think we're powerful. And that is why we take justice into our own hands. We think we can do God's job. It's interesting in passages like 1 Corinthians where Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's certainly hyperbole. But it's to say any weakness that God has, which he has none, but weakness is actually stronger than men. God is much stronger than us. Nahum points out just how strong he is as he speaks in those first verses that he has sovereignty over the sky, he has sovereignty over the sea, he has sovereignty over the mountains and the rivers. Things melt with his footsteps. And that is both poetic language but also language that reflects how powerful God is. We are weak and foolish in comparison to God. Our power cannot accomplish what we desire and what it comes down to is that we, unlike God, are not in control of anything. And God is in control of everything, right? You're feeling oppressed. You're feeling abused. You're feeling into us, and there's nothing you could do about it, but you fight, and you want to take it into your own hands and fix it and force it. You don't have that power. And it pushes us to trust the one who does have the power, to hope in the one who does control God controls, according to Nahum, both nature and nations. 
He is a heavenly father who always desires to give us his best, but he is also almighty God who has the power to ensure his best is always given. And without doubt, God does it his way and his time and he does it for his glory. And we go, man, God seeks after his own glory? That seems so selfish. I want you to think about this for a second. If God sought for anything or anyone else's glory, he would cease to be God and something else would be. We're not talking about just God in the sense we're talking about perfection of love, perfection of justice, things that we would all celebrate. But even if we go, man, God just seeks after his own glory, have you considered what the greatest manifestation of God seeking after that meant? That what God used his power to accomplish. He, in his sovereignty, used his power, wielded it for his glory by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. That was the greatest manifestation of his power. That's how he wielded his power. And we go, well, that's really self-centered. No, that's other-oriented. That's redemptive. The loving sacrifice of Jesus was the result of the sovereignty of God. It was completely in his control. Isn't that what Israel is asking? They look at the Assyrians. They're being exiled. They're being killed. And they're like, who is in control? It can't possibly be God. What do you think the disciples thought as Jesus was led to the cross? As Jesus was falsely tried and accused? As you have the religious leaders and the government and everybody like, who's in control of this? Would it surprise you to know that it was God the whole time. This is what Peter preaches in Acts 4. He says, in this city, reflecting on the death of Christ, who has resurrected at this point. But when he was crucified, he said, everyone was gathered against Jesus. Herod and Pontius Pilate, right? The government, the military, Gentiles, Irreligious people, even the Jews, the religious people who were supposed to be looking for this, they were all gathered against Jesus, right? Like Assyria, everyone's against us to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was never out of God's control, never outside of God's power. This is the God that we hope in. This is the God that we trust in. This is the God that we can release control and go, I guess I really don't have control, but I can have faith that you do. I can take comfort that you do. So all these things, all these attributes of God that make us somewhat uncomfortable standing alone, that God is jealous, that God is wrathful, that God is angry, that God's powerful, and in control. What should this, what should be our response to this? Fear. Fear. That's such a misunderstood term. We should fear God. You know, even though they repented for a time, the Assyrians prove that they actually never feared the one true God. What does it mean to fear God, though? Is it just to be scared of him? Don't smite me, God. Some would say that is the case. I would argue, and there's lots of ways to describe it, there are three basic ways to understand fearing God, and they all must be included. One 
it's, they're all A's because I'm an English teacher. I like alliteration, so go with it, right? Easy to remember. First is just awe. Just awe of God. What is awe? Well, imagine looking at something beautiful like a sunset that's just gorgeous. And what do you do? It's just astonished by the greatness and the beauty and the power of something or someone. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the prophets or, or different men kind of enter into the presence of God, you know their most common response? They fall flat on their face and they say, I'm not worthy. Overwhelmed with perfection, beauty, greatness, awe. I think sometimes we have a God that's so small that he no longer impresses us because we can control him. It's like, God, so in control, creating, unfolding his plan. It's just incredible. But it doesn't stop there. When, when you're awed by God, when you're astonished by His greatness and His power and His love and His mercy and His wrath, you know what you do? You submit to His authority. You do what He says because He said it. And you know who the one speaking is. You see Him and you're like, man, I don't, I, what I do know about you is, is, is awesome enough. Imagine what you haven't revealed about yourself. And we trust that, okay, I'm going to listen to you because you're the creator. You know, you designed me. You you know what's right. You know everything. See everything. And so it's not even just awe. It's not even just I'm going to follow you and be under your authority. Also, I'm going to accept the way things go. I'm accepting that as things are unfolding is exactly as God wants it. And it might have been Piper if you knew everything God knows, you would unfold it the exact same way. Accepting it. So when the people are sitting there like, oh, the Assyrians are doing this, and we're like, God knows. And right now, that's the way God wants it to go. But I want to be free of this. I don't like this. I know. God knows. And I can accept it because I know that he's in control. I know that he's in exact justice. I know that he has promises he's going to fulfill for his people. Now, that's the fear of God. But the Assyrian king revealed pretty clearly that, oh, he didn't fear God. It's interesting, in a passage in Isaiah, he talks about coming against the city. Hezekiah is the king. And the Assyrian is sending a message, the Assyrian king sending a message to the people, telling them what they should believe. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't let him mislead you, saying the Lord's going to deliver us, right? God's people, God's king saying, don't worry, the Lord's got this. And the Assyrian king comes and he reveals whether he really fears the Lord or not. He says, look, don't listen to Hezekiah. Have any of the gods of all the nations we defeated helped them? Has any of them delivered from the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath? Where are the gods of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? I said it quickly, so I didn't know how to say it. (laughs) And look at the last sentence. Samaria was the capital of Israel. That's the same God. Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? 
these gods you're talking about? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered the lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? That man doesn't fear God. He's put them in a big category with all a bunch of other gods that in his eyes have been silent and haven't helped their people. But our God is not dead. He does not sleep. And Nahum arrives to tell the Assyrian king just that. You see, the Assyrians, Assyrians died historically because they did not fear God. And I will tell you today, in the most loving warning I can give you, that men die eternally today because they do not fear God. You see, hell, we don't talk about that very often unless you're in the Gospels. Jesus talked about it quite a bit. And that is the eternal punishment for God for those who do not fear the Lord. They don't fear the Lord and not awe by him. They don't submit to his authority and they don't accept his ways. But the thing about it, we often talk about hell being separation from God. Without doubt, it is separation from his love, but it is not separation from his wrath. The Bible teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it begins. And I've sat with many people who have sat, you know, counseling situations with men and women, sometimes in marriages where a man is saying, yeah, you know, um, yeah, I've had this affair and I'm going to keep going. And you plead with them and you confront them and you're like, um, this is not going to go well. And they have no fear. I tell them this isn't wise, which means, right, you're not fearing the Lord. That's what I mean when it's not wise. You're not doing it the way the Lord, you're not believing God's promises. And I often open up Proverbs 1 to them. And this is wisdom speaking, personifies wisdom. God speaking through wisdom, warning those who say, eh, it doesn't matter if I sin. God's not done nothing. He says, through wisdom, I have called and you refuse to listen. I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. This is the Lord. I will mock when terror strikes you. This is the Lord saying this. When terror strikes you like a storm because you refuse to repent and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you, then you're going to call upon me and I'm not going to answer. You're going to seek me diligently and you're not going to find me because you hated knowledge and you did not choose the fear of the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And the key to knowing God is this word that is so difficult for us. Ready? Surrender. Surrender is the hardest thing for us to do. No one likes to be told what to do. We all like to be in charge, define our own right and our own wrong, do what we want. 
But when I say surrender, I might mean something a little bit different than you're thinking. Because here's an interesting truth. No one is ever scared into heaven. No one's ever scared into heaven. I just don't want to be killed. That's why I believe you really don't believe. It's not enough to surrender to God's wrath. I would argue you must actually surrender to his love. We're so fearful to come and confess our sins, so fearful that he would reject us, so fearful that we've done, and I assure you that's not the case. Let me give you an example. I have a child. This child would name nameless. But recently this child sinned. And I'm trying not to use personal pronouns, right? They went to their mother and confessed the sin. It was weighing on them. They felt guilty. And this child said, there's no way I can tell dad. Which kind of broke my heart a little bit. And so a couple of days went by and my wife had shared it with me, what had happened, and said, this child wants to share with you at some point. I'm like, okay. So I kept my distance to see if they would just approach me. And I got a text because I was at a meeting and said, are you going to be home at a certain time because this child really wants to talk to you before they go to bed? Yeah, I'll be there. So I arrive. And this child comes to me and you can see the guilt or the pain or the fear. Fear that I didn't want to see. So I sat down on the bed with this child and they said, well, what do I, I said, well, what do you have to share? Well, you know. I said, what is it? Well, you know. I said, I know, but what is it? And they confess their sin. And um, I asked, why were you afraid to tell me? It's like, I just know that you're, you know, mom's really nice. And <laughs> you kind of like tell it like it is. <laughs> okay. So I told this child. I want you to know that I I will love you till the day you die. No matter what you do. And there's nothing you could do that could change my love for you. And as I embraced her, um, dang it! <laughs> yeah, okay. But as I embraced her, I just said, this is how I need you to understand the love of the Father. I, I, I'm grieved, I'm disappointed, sure. But I never want you to fear condemnation, fear rejection, because that's not the Heavenly Father. See, the fear of the Lord changes for someone who surrenders to his love. It changes. It's not that we don't like, there's a sense where the unbeliever needs to be scared of God, but not the believer. We're still awed by God. We're still under his authority. We accept that he knows best and we trust him, but we're not scared of him. He's become a father, not just a judge. 
And this is why what's so beautiful about Nahum's prophecy, right? Because we, we, we see these verses, this jealousy and things, and then we get verse 7. Nahum 1.7. Oh, this is clicking. Put it on Nahum 1.7. And what does it say? The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. When things go bad, whether you caused them or someone else did, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. See, the fear of God, being scared of God, that's not going to change anything. You look at, you know, Pharaoh, right? God hardened his heart. But he eventually gave up, but he never believed. The only reason God hardened his heart because he had more to say. He would have given up a lot sooner. But he never believed. What changes a heart is faith in the love of God. That actually removes fear of God's wrath. This is what John tells us in his first epistle. He says, God is love, right? And you're like, okay, God is love. And what is the example he gives us? Trying to bring God's wrath and God's love together. In this is love. Okay, John, what is it? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be what? The propitiation. That's a big word. It means wrath sponge. He absorbed the wrath for our sins. He didn't just go, never mind. Let's just do a big do-over. Wrath was poured out for our sins on someone else. And for those who surrender to His love, those who receive His forgiveness, there is no condemnation any longer. There is no fear of judgment. How do we know love? The fact that God got angry and the fact that God poured out His wrath on a substitute, His only Son. This is what I've described as the angry love of God. While fear of God remains as I've described, John says it's changed because there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out that kind of fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is the message of Nahum. A surprising and uncomfortably beautiful message. We don't run from God to avoid His wrath. We actually run to God to receive His love. And wrath is taken away. For those who don't know Christ, I compel you to receive the love of Christ. Turn from your sin. Repent for the kingdom that is at hand. In other words, you've been going the wrong way. Turn to the Lord and He is ready to receive you and forgive you and be a refuge to you when the wrath does come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise